All right, at this time I want to dismiss for tot time. So if you have a child who is a kind of a toddler age, preschool age, up to about five or six, uh, they can head out. We have a room kind of in this back corner called the Martha Room uh, where they'll have an age-appropriate lesson. See, I don't forget tot time every time, just most of the time. All right, well, church, will you stand with me if you're able? We are in Ephesians chapter 1, doing verses 3 through 14 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, Father, you are so great. Help us to hear from you this morning, and may we praise you for what you have done. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1937, at the conference of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, Some applause broke out for dictator Joseph Stalin, and unsurprisingly, because he was a dictator, everyone was too afraid to stop clapping. And so the applause went on for 11 minutes of just nonstop, yeah, this is our leader. So, you know, 11 minutes, it's a long time. Supposedly the guy who was brave enough to stop ended up in prison a few hours later. Now, I think it's safe to say that Stalin's applause was not truly earned. We all know what it looks like to give genuine praise and applause to something. We've all been in those situations. Maybe it's a sporting event or a concert where you, you are just moved by what you see, by what you hear. You can't wait when the, for when the curtains close or when, the, when, it's, when they're done performing for you to just clap. I mean, you're moved. You have to. You have to give glory to it. You praise what you've seen. Praise is the right reaction to something beautiful. We are hardwired to praise. When we see something beautiful, to say, yes, that is beautiful and good. And I want to let everyone know. It's part of who we are as people. Now, in our passage today that we just read, there were 202 
words, all in one single sentence. 202 words in the original language, I should say, in Greek. 202 words in one long sentence. Aside from a genealogy that we find in Luke chapter 3, this is the longest sentence in the New Testament. The longest sentence. And what is it? It's 202 words of Paul praising God. A long, continuous, run-on sentence where he is just overwhelmed with talking about what God has done and how great God is. He can't help himself but talk about it. It's beautiful what God has done. Now, you may be struggling coming in to church this morning. You may have had an incredibly difficult week. We've had a hard week in the Johnson household. Four of the five of us were sick, and it wasn't a one-hour stomach bug. This was the week-long variety where you felt like death for a long time. So, by the way, you know, Paul talks about the spiritual blessings that we have in this passage God has blessed me with a lovely wife. She was the one person who did not get sick, and she hates being singled out, but I just want to publicly acknowledge that my wife took care of four sick people uh, all week this week, got vomit all over her, and I, I don't know how she didn't get sick, but she didn't. She was incredible. So um, I, I praise God for you, my beloved bride. So um, anyways, a little side note there. But you may have had a rough week. You may have lost someone. You may be looking at your life and saying, I don't feel particularly blessed this morning. I'm emotionally distraught. And the truth is, the world around us and our enemy Satan and even our flesh will often try to convince us, convince us that what we just read in this passage is not true. It doesn't feel true. It doesn't seem true. But God wants us to know that these things are indeed true and they need to be heard. Now, I hope that as we look at the passage today, we don't just see what's there and say, isn't this nice what's happened to us and what's been done for us? But that ultimately, as we look at these wonderful things, it will direct our eyes to God and that we will say, praise be to God for what He has done for us. Today's message is ultimately not about us. It is about Him and what He has done. He is worthy of praise. Now, I want to give you the big idea off the, uh, right off the top. This is in your, your, your uh, service order, your worship order notes. It's this, praise God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You may look at that and say, Mark, that sounds an awful lot like verse 3. And I say, yes, indeed it is. I was not very creative this week, but part of what I try to do with the scriptures is, is explain them to you. So Paul says it very clearly what he's doing. I don't need to repeat that. So there you go. There's the summary of what, of what we're doing. I don't need to come up with something clever. Just that's the point today. Praise be to God for the blessings that he has given to us in Christ. Amen. Amen. Hopefully today we will respond with simple praise. That's the application as well. Praise God. All right, so let's start in verse 3, just seeing what Paul does say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he starts with blessed be. And the Bible uses this word of blessed, which I am pronouncing differently than blessed on purpose so that you can differentiate between the two. Blessed is an adjective, it's a description, and the Bible uses this word to, to express the idea of someone deserving appreciation, honor, and praise. And this isn't a wish, it is a declaration. And in the New Testament, 
This is only used of God. This word, blessed be God. This isn't the same word that we find in the Beatitudes where we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Different word. And we talked a lot about that about a year ago when we uh, were in that passage in Matthew chapter 5. So not the same word. This word is talking more of praise. Praise be to God. The Jews at the time of Jesus even used this word or said the blessed as a shorthand way of referring to God. So Paul starts out this passage basically saying, praise God. And why? Because he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And blessed, in this sense, is used as a verb. It's a very similar word, but it's the verbal form. So the adjectival form is used just of God, praise God. And why? Because he has blessed us. He has given us someone or given someone a benefit. That's what it is to bless By the way, those blessings are only found in Jesus Christ. As I talk today about the things that are given to us, it is specifically for those who are in Jesus, who believe in Him. It is not for those who do not believe in Him. So as I talk today, and you hear these things, and you're not in Christ, I invite you to to be in Christ, to believe in Christ, to confess your sins and to believe that He died for them on the cross, because these things can be yours as well. But they are only found in Jesus. They're only found in Jesus. And what kind of blessings are these? They're not material blessings. They're spiritual blessings. They're pure, unstained, whole. They're ultimately what we truly need. They're in the heavenly places. In the sense they are where God is. They are protected by God. They are present with God. They are spiritual blessings. The the type of thing that we truly need and we long for. Peace with God. And these things are true. All of these things that Paul talks about in these verses, they are things that he says you have, not are coming, but that you have now in the heavenly places. They are true. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 3, as Joshua and the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, God says this, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So even though they weren't in the land, they hadn't possessed the land, they still had the deed to the land. God had given it to them. He said, it is yours even if you are not experiencing life in the land. These blessings that we are going to look at today are ours now, even though you may not feel like you are possessing them at the moment. They are yours right now. Now this passage in verses 4 and following, because it's one long sentence, it's hard to kind of find what kind of structure even is there here? Because it is a long kind of run-on sentence. And people have tried to figure out for a long time, okay, what's the logical flow to what Paul's doing? But I think there's three markers that give a pretty clear indication of at least some segments of thought. And he's not really making a theological argument in the sense of point A, point B, point C, and they all hinge upon one another, but he's just overflowing with praise, but he does group his thoughts. He groups them in a Trinitarian way. 
we're going to see the plan of the Father and the work of the Son and the presence of the Spirit. And the marker that kind of demonstrates this is in verses 6, 12, and 14. You get this little tag of to, the pra- to His praise or to his, the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory, something along those lines. So Paul is kind of putting these little indicators that a little section is done. But the Trinity shows up. Anyone ever tell you that the Trinity isn't in the New Testament? You'd be like, you're not reading your Bible close enough because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit show up all together all the time. See, the Father plans, the Son purchases, and the Holy Spirit preserves. And in Ephesians, they are together a lot. I didn't come up with those three Ps, by the way, but uh, those way that ways that many theologians speak of the work of the Trinity. All right, so you can see in your worship order, we got these three sections. We're going to start with the, work, or the plan of the Father, and then move to the work of the Son, and then finally talk about the presence of the Spirit. All right, so first idea right off the bat. Blessings from the plan of the Father. First one. And by the way, there's six total. Two with the Father, three from the Son, one from the Spirit. Number one, we were chosen. We were chosen. Very clear, we see this in verse 4. He picks up, you know, hey, we've got these blessings. Praise God for that. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him. It could also be translated as because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This idea of chosen is the idea of being elected. The word is used to denote surveying your options, looking at everything you could pick, and then picking for yourself. That is very key in the language. Picking for yourself. It's not, I'm picking for somebody else, but I'm picking for myself on nothing but my pleasure. I like this one. It's not to say I don't like this one over here, but oh, this one. I'm going to pick it for me. That's the word that Paul uses here. This is the first blessing he lists. He says, we were chosen. God picked us. Wow! Us? Sinners? Rotten, rebellious, wicked people? God looked at me and he said, I'm going to pick him for myself. What a delight. He didn't pick us. He didn't pick me because of skills or inherent worth or good looks. He picked me because of his mercy. And Christian, he picked you because of his mercy. He saw you and said, I want this one. Before the foundation of the world, he saw all the rottenness that you would do. He said, that one. I want him, I want her. And to what end? That we would get to be holy and blameless. He chooses us out and calls us out of this sinfulness and makes us holy and blameless. Transforms us. Oh, Lord. Me, I get to be holy and blameless? It's like if somebody were picking teams. It's like you picked, God, you seem to pick the worst ones, the people who should be picked last. And then you imbued them with professional athletic skill and you're sending them out into the world. It's like that's what's going on here. We get to be holy and blameless. We get to be 
pure like God. We get to be the way we ought to be for everything to be functioning right. Praise God that we were chosen. We were chosen. And secondly, we were predestined for adoption. So Paul takes this idea of choosing and he takes it one, one step deeper. It's like you weren't just chosen and God likes you. He's bringing you into his family. You were predestined for adoption. Verses 5 and 6, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. I want to start talking about adoption. I'll hit on predestination in a minute. The idea of adoption is bringing someone into a family. They have all of the rights and privileges of a natural-born child. They are made an heir. Now, those things are obvious from adoption, but one of the things that we miss in our cultural context is that in the ancient world, if you were brought into a family for adoption, you also, because it was a very father-oriented society, you were under the control and authority of that father. But also his protection. Yeah, sure, you got the father's stuff when he died, but our father's not going to die. But we still get to be part of his kingdom, and we get to be his So when Paul says you've been adopted, he's saying you get to be under the realm of our Father's protection and authority. I remember at my wedding, going up to my father-in-law, and I've shared this before, but going to my father-in-law and thanking him that I got to be part of his family. I just couldn't believe it, that I got to be in his family. He's a godly man. He's since passed away, but... I just remember being overwhelmed with emotion, thinking that the people that he influenced were now my family as well. What joy. So we were adopted and we were predestined for this. God determined it. He said it. It cannot be thwarted. God didn't look and say, oh, I think I like what I see out here in the future. No, he predestined it. It was according to his plan. Now, I'll talk more about that in a moment, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. But that is supposed to ground us with a sense of security. We're chosen and we're predestined for adoption. I can't screw this up. God loves me that much. This was done in love. It is a gracious act. Grace is unmerited favor. We become children of God We are chosen into his family, not because of what we do. We deserve the exact opposite. We deserve to be cast out as rebellious, wicked enemies. But instead, in grace, because of undeserved favor, he just gives us mercy and brings us into his family. That is grace. Earlier this week, I was asked for a reference to one of my sermons. They said, hey, can you give us an example of one of your sermons that is about grace? And I kind of was looking back through the archive, and I'm like, I don't have a sermon that is about grace. My, my sermons, I try to talk about how grace is in all the pages of the Scriptures, and all of what God does for us is grace. I don't have a sermon about grace. Now, later on in Ephesians, I probably will have a sermon about grace, because that's going to be a huge theme. But all of what God does for us is grace. Praise be to God, amen? He is good 
to us. And that is the response that Paul has in verse 6. He does all this and to the praise of His glorious grace. Kind of marks the end of this first section about the plan of his father. And when he says to the praise of his glorious grace, what he's basically saying is I'm, to the praise. One commentator put, put it this way. This is a really awkward way, okay? So bear with me. But I thought it was fun. To the praise of God's essential being for his gracious quality. You may be like, okay, what does that mean? And now it's basically praise God that this is who he is. This isn't something tacked on to his being, that he is gracious from his core. And that is why he has chosen us. That is why he has adopted us. That is why he ought to be praised. Praise God, this is the way he is. We have a gracious and merciful Father. Now, how do we apply this? When you are tempted to feel rejected, or even if people around you actually do reject you, remember, you were chosen. God has called you his child. He predestined it. He can't take it away. So it doesn't matter what goes on in this world around you. Even to the point of death, you are His. Or when you look at your own sin and you think, God, you must be frustrated with me. I'm surprised by my sin. Remember, God is not. Sure, He doesn't delight in it. But God chose you even though He knew about your sin. And all of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross for them. God delights in you because you are his child. And he looks at you, he sees Jesus, and your sin has been paid for, which we're going to see in this second one. So moving on <clears throat> to the blessings of the work, or from the work of the Son, the first one is that we have redemption and forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness. Why do I put these together? Well, because Paul seems to put them together. Redemption and forgiveness. Starting in verses 7 and 8, Paul talks about the beloved. The beloved was referenced in verse 6, that's Jesus. So in verse 7, in him, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and understanding. Redemption. Redemption is, is freeing someone from captivity or slavery. That's, that's the idea. Someone becoming free. There's an emphasis in the word on the idea of the freedom, but there's also the presence of the idea of a payment. You can't get somebody out of slavery without a purchase price. For Israel in Egypt, it was the cost of the firstborn sons. The lamb on the doorpost covered their price. For us, it's the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the price. His life is the price of our sins. Yes, our sin is wicked. Yes, it incurs the wrath of God. Paul is going to talk about the wrath of God in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It is real. It is good. But oh, praise be to God that Jesus' blood was poured out for us. It has been paid for what we have done. We have redemption. We are free in Christ. And we have forgiveness. Forgiveness is literally the payment of a debt. Our sins have been put away with. They've been dealt with. It would be wrong for God to punish you, Christian, for your sins. Why? Because your sins have been paid for on the cross. There's no double jeopardy. We have redemption, forgiveness of our trespasses. And this wasn't just given to us in a little trickle. 
How does Paul say it was given to us? It was lavished upon us. This grace, again, Jesus' death and, and pouring out his blood for us was an act of grace. This was given to us by grace, and it was lavished upon us. What a great, beautiful word. A couple years ago, when I was in Central Asia, uh, uh, our missionary friends took us and our group out to dinner at a local restaurant. And my definition of lavish will, ever, will forever be affected by what happened at this restaurant. Our friends there wanted to make us feel welcome and that we were experiencing the full culture of the place. And so they bought us, I think, like everything on the menu. That's certainly what it felt like. I remember getting incredibly full and there was already so much food on the table uneaten. And I remember looking at them and I'm like, I can't eat all of this. And they said, you'd better try because this is half of what we've ordered. And I'm like, oh no. They lavished food upon us that evening. We ended up boxing up all of it and giving it to our missionary friends and being like, let us lavish this back on you because we can't eat it. A lavish, to, to lavish his grace and love on us is the idea of, of a dam being broken that's holding back an ocean and God's love just comes through. That's what's being lavished on us. It's not going and taking a little bath in a little mountain spring. No, it's standing at the foot of a dam holding back an ocean that breaks. That is God's grace that is washing over us. He lavished it upon us. So to apply this to our life, when you see your sin and you are tempted to believe that God cannot forgive you, remember, no, redemption and forgiveness have been purchased and God just asks you to confess it and to ask Him to forgive and of course He will because church... In Christ, he has, and he longs for you to be in right relationship with him. But then secondly, corporately, when you are interacting with others and you see their sin, ooh, when you see the sin of other Christians and it starts rubbing against you, you know, that can be frustrating. But it's in those moments that we need to remember their sin was paid for as well. And Christian, how dare you hold the sin of your brother and sister in Christ over them and not forgive them. Yes, we confront. Yes, we lovingly correct. Yes, we want them to grow. So I'm not saying don't deal with sin. By no means am I saying that. But to hold somebody else's sin over them and say, I can't forgive them. If they're a believer, God forgave them. You going to do better than God? Don't think so. So this passage reminds us to even forgive one another as we reflect on how Christ has forgiven us. Our next blessing, he has made known to us the mystery of his plan. Some translations put a, a, a sentence break here. I think actually I like that. I think it, it makes a little more sense for us as English readers. So I think the Christian Standard Bible does that. ESV kind of tries to capture Paul's free-flowing thought and reads, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he has made known to us the mystery of his plan. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean all of a sudden, well, I get to ascertain God's will. I know exactly what God wants for my life. He wants me to marry that woman. He wants me to have this job. It's like shaking a magic eight ball figuring out, oh, what's God's plan for my life? That is not what Paul is talking about here. He is saying God has shown us 
He has revealed to us His plan for Christ to be the one who saves the world. Christ is the one who is reconciling all things and uniting all things in Himself. He's saying that's a blessing to get to know that. And of course, it's that we know that, that we get to become believers. But that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying all of a sudden we get to shake a magic eight ball and get the right answer for God's plan for our life. But no, we get to know God's plan for the world. And that plan is Christ. All right, next blessing. We have obtained an inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. I'm not going to talk too much about the inheritance part because we're actually going to hit on that next week. Paul brings it up again in the next chapter. But here, real quick, in verses 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again, to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance, a heavenly home, something is awaiting us, and Paul praises God for that. But not, not just do we have something waiting for us, but God is our inheritance, and we are his inheritance. Again, God has chosen us. Israel was God's inheritance, we are God's inheritance, and he is ours. We've obtained an inheritance. And this word predestined pops up a little again. So I want to talk about it just briefly this morning, as briefly as I can. But we see here that Paul says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this passage is one of the ones, one of the passages we use to talk about God's or the doctrine of God's meticulous sovereignty. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, it's the idea that God is in control of absolutely everything, every molecule that you could find, every subatomic particle, every galaxy and star on the other side of the universe. God is in control of it all, absolutely everything. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. God ordains all things. You may look at the world around us and say, Mark, I see a lot of evil. How can you say that God ordains that? Now, I want to be very clear. God is in control. God ordains all things. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. But God does ordain all things, even the difficult things. We see this in Genesis 50. Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says, well, you meant for evil, God meant for good. Was it good for God to send Joseph by the hands of his brothers down to Egypt sold into slavery? Yes, it was good for God to do that. Was it wrong for Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery? Yes. Genesis 3. Was it wrong for Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against the Lord's command? Yes, it was wrong. Was it good for the Lord to purpose from eternity past that mankind would fall so that he could redeem people by the blood of his son, thereby showing his gracious mercy to his people? Yes, indeed, that is good. All that God has done is good. You can look at Acts chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 2. Paul, or Peter is preaching. And he says in chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, again, plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Two chapters later, the believers are praying in chapter 4, starting in verses 27 and 28, 
They say, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, so all these wicked people, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was it wrong for them to crucify Jesus? Absolutely. Most wicked, heinous thing that has ever happened. Greatest sin ever committed. Was it right for God to offer His Son as the sacrifice for our sin? Yes, it was right for Him to do that and good for Him to purpose to do that. Whatever God does is good. God cannot do evil. Somehow, mysteriously, He uses the wicked plans of evil men for His good ends. And He ordains it, but He is not the author of sin. So we hold human responsibility in this hand, but we also hold divine sovereignty in this hand. How do those two go together? Theologians have been debating it for thousands of years, so, so good luck if, if you can ever figure it out on your own. But the scriptures teach both, so we want to hold both. We see examples of God's meticulous sovereignty over all things. He declares the end from the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 10 He's talking about how he has sent Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, but then he judges Assyria for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. Was it right for God to judge Israel with Assyria? Yes. Was it wrong for Assyria to be ruthless and wicked and to destroy the northern kingdom, Israel? Yes. Both of those are true. Okay, sorry, there's a little bit of a systematic theology class for you guys this morning. But it's a powerful thing here, and, and I don't want to escape. When we come to these harder truths in Scripture, I don't want to escape from them. I want to preach them well, but I also want to make sure I'm, I'm preaching them when they come up in the text. So here we have this great doctrine of God's meticulous sovereignty that we are meant to find comfort in and to say, God, we praise you that you are in control. When we look at all of these blessings, we see that so many of them are about God's control and His presence in our lives. He's worked all things for the purpose of His will, so rest in the truth that He is in control, and this is all to the praise of His glory. See these truths and praise God. All right, last one. I know we've, today's a little longer than normal. Please forgive me. So we move on to the presence of the Spirit. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Hopefully no surprise there. It's clearly in the text. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul offers up two images. We have one of the seal. This is the idea of a seal on a letter. You don't tamper with the letter. You don't break it. We have, we've been sealed. We are counted as gods. And the second one is the deposit, the down payment that's been given, saying, yes, you own this. You know, I have a mortgage. But that doesn't keep me from saying, I own my home. Do I own my home outright? No. But I own my home. Somebody's asking me that. Yeah, I'm not renting. I have a house. Why? I gave a down payment. It's mine. And Jesus, or sorry, excuse me, the Holy Spirit is that down payment in our life that God has given us saying, you belong to me. You are my adopted child. There's a process of salvation. We hear, he says, you heard the word of truth 
and then you believed. So again, I urge you, if you are hearing the truth that Jesus died for your sins and you have not believed, then I encourage you, believe. He will receive all those who believe in him. Believe. And what does he do when, that happens? when, when you believe? You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. He will not leave what does he do? He changes your affections. He helps you understand the scriptures. He reorders your thinking. He helps you to choose the good. You become a new person. He begins a good work in you, and he will carry it out to completion on that day. We have the Holy Spirit. And believer, the Lord wants us to see this and to know again that we are secured, we're chosen, we're adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we know we've got an inheritance and we have the Holy Spirit. And all of this is to the praise of His glory. Church, I urge you this week, you may be wondering, what do I do with this? Take this list and just List it out, these beautiful truths. There's, there's more in there, too. You could break down a lot of these phrases and find even more blessings. I, I kind of chose the biggest umbrellas that Paul uses, but there's more that you could talk about, that Paul, has done, or that Paul talks about, that Jesus has done. Make that list, and then just, pray, just read through it and praise God for it, even if you don't feel like praising God, and even if you don't feel like those are true. It's a good exercise to say thank you, even when you don't feel like giving thanks. And that can sometimes help your heart be changed. So if you are struggling, even if you're not struggling, take this list and just praise God for what he has done. Church, I could spend weeks talking about each one of these doctrines that we find in here. I hope today that just 40 minutes together, was just whetting your appetite of the beautiful things that have been done for us in Jesus. Because, oh, we could spend a lifetime thinking about what he has done because our God is worthy of our praise. So I'll just close with this. Praise God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Let me pray. Father, we praise you. We praise your name because of what you have done for us in Christ. You are worthy of our admiration and our affections because of what you've done and what you have done flows out of who you are. Thank you for choosing us, for adopting us. Thank you for redeeming us, purchasing us through the blood of Jesus and forgiving our sins. Thank you for letting us know this beautiful truth. Thank you for giving us an inheritance. Thank you for giving us your spirit, sealing us with your spirit. Lord, I pray that we as a church would embrace these truths. We would run in these truths. We would delight in these truths. Oh, Lord, may we never tire of singing your praises because you are good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.